Thank you, church. If you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. I'm reminded as you're turning there, hearing the sound of crickets, I just knew there was a pastoral joke in there somewhere. I just couldn't figure out what it was, but I think that you can probably imagine one in your mind right now. Crickets are everywhere. And so uh, thank you for your patience as we listen to God's word with crickets in the background. Uh, praise be to God for that little comedic relief this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to continue uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians, finishing chapter 14 this week. What I'd like to do is uh, kind of give you some context first, and then I'm going to give you the main idea, and we're just going to jump right into the passage. So this is the eighth topic in the book, as we've been going through out of about ten, the way that I count it, spiritual gifts and order in the church. And in short summary, here's what we've seen. God gives spiritual gifts to every single Christian. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Whenever we started this section uh, back in chapter 12, I got a phone call from someone, a sister in Christ, and she said, I can't explain to you how encouraging it was to hear God has gifted me for something. I've never really thought about that. And so this is true of all of us. God has gifted every single Christian at least one, probably more, spiritual gifts for his service. Well, in the church, we've seen that every single Christian's involvement is important. The analogy that he used is like a body. There's a body with all these different parts that are all functioning together in unison. Imagine trying to walk without your big toe or trying to write without your thumb. The parts that seem the most insignificant are actually the most vital. So in the church, every Christian's involvement is important. We've seen that spiritual gifts, when rightly practiced, build up the church with an outward focus. So we are all equipped to go out into the community. An analogy I've heard with this recently that was very good was, and I'm going to get these backwards, but you'll get it whenever I explain it. Forgive the wrong vocabulary. But there's centrifugal force and then centripetal force. And one of these, things are going around but towards a center, and he said, what actually happens is some of our churches are structured that way where everything's going around and around the gospel, but it's drawing us in and something is wrong. What actually should happen is as though you put sand on a turntable and spin it quickly and all the sand goes outward. So as you were centering around the truth of the gospel, you were being equipped to go out into the world and into the community. The last thing that we saw here is that love is what fuels all of these practices within the church. Because we love one another, we exercise our spiritual gifts towards one another to build one another up and to send one another out into the world. So the past two weeks, Paul has tackled a tough issue in the church. It's a false practice in the church that was going on that was existing underneath the name of a true practice in the church, the gift of tongues. He addresses it sensitively, yet clearly. And so this week, he's going to finish his topic. Before we read our passage, I'm going to give you the main idea this morning. Christians and churches are characterized by godly character and godly order. Christians and churches are characterized by godly character and godly order. Hopefully you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's Word. Just as a reminder, a physical reminder of our spiritual posture before the Lord. Eagerness and willingness and readiness to submit to the authority of His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together... Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in churches, in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their, their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, as the songwriter has written and as we regularly sing, our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, prone to leave you the God that we love. And the same is true as we come to your scriptures. We are prone to wander from the truth of your word, especially in passages that are difficult to understand. So as we've continued in the book of 1 Corinthians, needing your leading and guiding in the preaching of your word and the reception of your word, we need it even more this morning, that you would guide us into your word, that we might be further transformed into the image of Jesus Christ for your honor and glory and for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So we are entering into a passage that pastors regularly joke about. Those pastors that are not bound to books of the Bible, but are able to choose and select what they preach each week, it is very easy to avoid this passage. This is not a passage that we are eager to step up and say, well, I want to preach this one. But as we come to this passage in the book of Corinthians, we cannot skip over. As we begin... I want to remind us as we're finishing up chapter 14 that Paul, at the beginning of 14, all the way through verse 25, has basically laid a theological foundation of the purpose of spiritual gifts. Here's the purpose they're supposed to serve, and if they're not serving this function, something's not right. If you're going to practice a gift, and it's a true spiritual gift, it should serve this function. If it doesn't, don't do that in the church. It's kind of what he says. So now he's going to move from this theological foundation to something real practical. In light of everything we've looked at, what do we need to do? How do we need to do it? He does this a lot of times in his writings, sometimes taking a whole book of the Bible, say the book of Romans, laying a theological foundation for most of the book, and then only at the end saying, okay, practically here's what we do in light of all of this. So he begins here with this phrase, when you come together, in verse 26, what then, in light of everything we've seen, brothers, what are we to do about this? When you come together, this describes their gathering as a church. This is what we're doing now. This is, right now, when we come together. One of the times, at least anyway. We might, if we were to modernize this, we might say, whenever you come to church, here's what you are to do. Or really, maybe more accurately, what we might be saying is when we assemble to function as a biblical church, a New Testament church, these are the instructions that they give us on what that should look like. This is just another reminder, though we don't see the term here, that church membership is in the Bible. It is all over the place. In chapter 14 alone, as a reminder, we've seen that there's an assembled gathering of Christians and there are those that are a part of the group and then there are those who are described as outsiders. So even if they don't use the term, they have some way of clarifying who is of us, what it means for us to gather, and then who is not of us. Well, when the church gathers for church, what are they to do? Look here. Each one has a hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. This is simply the application of everything that he's been saying. Spiritual gifts are intended to equip the church to build itself up. That's their purpose. As the church functions like the church is designed to, the gospel is confirmed in the church and it draws those who were lost 
into the church. As they come to Christ, they are baptized into the body of Christ. That's what we symbolize in our baptistry when someone comes to faith or they profess faith in Christ and they are later baptized. They're saying, I now belong to God's church and so I seek to belong to a local church. So the church functions as the church, confirms the gospel, those who are lost are saved, and the church is built up. So now Paul applies this principle of building to everything the church does. Look at this. Let all things be done for building up. He doesn't specify, though he could have let all of these things, let each of these things, there's a way that he could have said that, and he didn't say it that way. He gives a list, what, what, what are we to do then? When you come together, everyone has all these different things. Here's my instruction. Let all things be done for building up. Now, I do want to point out in this list, we look at lesson and revelation. Those are pretty simple to understand how they build up. They give us information. They teach us. Okay, that's excellent. We see here that tongue and interpretation also serves building up. So it is to be exercised in a way that we are built up in the faith. But then we have here, each one has a hymn. So hymn here simply refers to spiritual songs. That book in the back of the pew in front of you did not exist whenever this church existed. It came up in the last century, if that. Some of the songs collected in there maybe a couple of centuries ago, maybe three or four, a very few of them. Most of them did not. So the hymn book of the church, there is no official hymn book. It molds over time as the church finds new ways to sing the classic truths of God. So this is just spiritual songs. But notice, the purpose of the song is not entertainment. It is building. We just sang this song, Sovereign Over Us. And it reminds us that whenever we are in these deeply troublesome moments, we got news just last night, someone sent in a prayer request. Someone had fallen down and had cut his arm severely, found out that we, he just barely missed the artery there, but just in a moment, his life could be over. In these moments, how do we cope with these things as Christians? I remember your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. When we suffer loss in life, you are faithful. You are perfect in love. Our songs serve a building up function in the church. They serve a formative function. The church is discipled in part by what it chooses to sing and dwell upon. So the more isolated our songs are, the more out of proportion we'll be as Christians. But the more well-rounded our song selection is, the more well-rounded we'll be as a, as a Christian and equipped to handle what God has called us to equip. So we go through this list and we see here, okay, these are all intended for building up. And then he says, let all things be done for building up. And this starts a series of eight commands, eight imperatives in this verse. Well, how do we know which ones are imperatives? In the ESV, it's really easy. Anytime you see the word let in this passage, it's an imperative. An imperative is an instruction. He's not describing something. He's commanding that something be done. It's an imperative. So the word let is an imperative. Well, why do we word it that way? Well, the problem is here that in the Greek, we don't really have a one-to-one -one correspondence between the Greek and English here. Because what they're using in the Greek is called a third-person imperative. Just hang with me for just a moment. In English, I would say something like, hey, uh, Kristen, would you please go get me a Ziploc bag? Well, another way of saying that would be, if she's looking at me, go get a Ziploc bag for me. I, I didn't say Kristen. I didn't say you. But it's implied. In the second person, I'm saying, you, please go do this for me. That's second person. The person you are talking to is going to do the instruction. Well, in the Greek, they have something we don't really have an equivalent for, an easy equivalent for in English. It's a third person imperative. So it's for me to talk to one person, but I'm instructing other people as I'm talking to this person. So it's not you go do it, it's, hey, you, 
Everyone else should be doing this right now. We don't have a clear way of saying that in the English. So it's almost like we're saying, hey, let this person, let him run, or let her go to the store. Now, when we say that in English, it sounds like what we're saying is, allow that person to do this. Let this happen. Let it go. Let the fish go. Allow the fish to go. But it's not really an allowance. It's a command. It's an imperative here. The easiest comparison, we have a similar mood sort of in the Hebrew. And in Genesis 1-3, in the very beginning, what does God say? Let there be light. He's not saying, okay, light, I'm going to allow you to exist now. He is commanding for light to exist. Let there be light. It's not a suggestion, but a command. And then, boom, light exists. So that's what Paul is doing here. There's eight commands. The ESV makes it real easy if you have that translation. You can walk through and see every time the word let appears. I've gone back and double-checked this. It is a third-person imperative every single time. It's an instruction for the whole church. So it's as if Paul is speaking to the church as a whole and then saying all of you in it should do this. Now there's another thing I need to point out here as we go through. There's another word that you'll see frequently in front of almost every one of these commands, and it's the word if. So if is a condition. If it's true, you do it. If it's not true, you don't do it. So some of these commands are only going to apply if that condition is met. With all of that groundwork being laid, we see the first one already, let all things be done for building up. That's an instruction. It's a non-negotiable. Everything that you do in the church is to serve the function of building up. Then he continues. Look now in verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or only two or at the most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. So what we see here is order and harmony in how the church exercises its spiritual gifts. If means that tongues may or may not happen. If it does happen, then here's what must happen for order and harmony to exist. There is to be only two to three speakers, and only one at a time, and only with an interpreter. Without all of these conditions being met, this practice ought not to happen. Without these, the reason is, edification can't happen. You're a foreigner to the one who is speaking, as we've looked at already. It becomes an irrational experience that puffs up the speaker rather than serving those who can hear. And that's contrary to how the church operates. So what if there's no interpreter? Look at verse 28. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So this verse is really insightful for us. What it means is this. Number one, the one who speaks in biblical tongues has complete control over the gift. He or she can choose when to speak and when not to speak. Also, we see that the church apparently knew who the interpreters were. Because you can't speak unless the interpreter is there. How they worked that out, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we know that they at least know who the interpreters are to know whether or not they can speak. And then the third thing here is a similarity between the one who speaks in tongues and the one who prophesies. If you want to look a few verses later, you see the instruction for the, for the tongue speaker. Two or at the most three for prophecy. Two were at the most three. There's going to be an interpretation of tongues, and there's going to be a weighing of what the prophet says. If there's no interpreter, then silence. If in prophecy another one stands up with the prophecy, silence. And we see this purpose in verse 31. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. 
So by implication, the purpose in tongues, how it builds up, is that through the interpreter, we might learn and be encouraged in the faith. It serves this purpose of building. So it seems that tongues, when rightly practiced in the church with an interpreter, played a similar role to prophecy, instruction and encouragement. So now let's look at the next commands. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, other than the first command in verse 26, let all things be done for building up, this is the only command in this passage without the word if. There is no condition here. This just needs to happen. There's an expectation that when the church gathers as God's people, God is going to speak. In the Corinthian church, it happened through these prophets. Think of how much danger could be done if the church got together and a false prophet stood up and said, I have a word from the Lord, and then just started speaking, and there was no way to verify or authenticate whether or not this individual is really a prophet. That could be destructive. So Paul gives these guardrails of other prophets who must weigh what the first one says. And if one of the prophets stands up to say something, the first must stop and then allow this other prophet to stand up and to speak to that. So there is a natural system of checks and balances as the church weighs what is being said. This is one of the reasons that tongues needed an interpreter, same same issue. Well, we don't operate through prophecy today. Why? Because we have the written word of God. But what this does not mean is that because we have the written word of God, that now we don't have to weigh what the pastor says from God's word. We still weigh today what the Lord speaks through his messengers, but we do it in a different way. In Acts chapter 17, Paul describes this people group in Berea. And he takes the gospel to them, and it says that the Bereans, quote, examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is one of the reasons that the preaching of God's word holds such a central role in the gathered church today. When God's word is preached, God is speaking through his word. The Holy Spirit inspired it. And then as we hear it, the Holy Spirit within us is grabbing a hold of those truths and applying it to us. Hebrews 4 describes it as a double-edged sword. Ephesians says that the word is the sword of the Spirit. So it's like the Spirit is taking God's word like a scalpel and performing heart surgery on us every time we hear it proclaimed. God is speaking. But we need to make sure that the herald of God's word is actually speaking according to God's word. So the way we weigh that today is everyone in this room ought to have a Bible open and looking at the passage and saying, but is that really what it says? And looking at it to see for ourselves, just like the Bereans did. And in handling it this way, the church can be safely encouraged and built up in knowledge. At the very end of this, in verse 33, Paul gives us the key to understanding everything that he's just commanded here. He says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The reason the church must function in an orderly way is because God is a God of order. What this means is the church is intended to function in alignment with the character of God. The church is to function, to strive to look like God. Here's our first point this morning. The church is to model God's character and nature. The church is to model God's character and nature such that the world can look at the church and know something about who God is, what he is like, based on what we do as a church or as individual Christians within it. Now, there's two ways I'm going to give you in just a moment that that happens, two kind of sub-points maybe underneath that. 
But I want to emphasize first that this is the whole reason we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. In the beginning, we were created in the image of God. And then through our fall into sin, now we all have a sinful nature. If you want to know more about that tonight, we're going to continue through our study of the Baptist faith and message. And we talk about the doctrine of man tonight. The 1925 calls it the doctrine of the fall of man. So we're going to look at that a little bit in more detail tonight. But we have fallen from this original design. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul instructs husbands how to love their wives. And he says for them to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's what it says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So to be a Christian is to be purchased by the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross, so that we might be remade into the image of God through him. That's what God is doing in us as Christians. To be a church, therefore, is to be a gathering of people who now exist for that purpose. So the church is to model God's character and nature. Let me give you two ways that this happens based on our text this morning. Number one, the church models God's character and nature in its members. In its members. That's what we just looked at in Ephesians that's what we previously saw in 1 Corinthians 5, as holiness or unholiness is addressed in the church. Well, this morning in our passage, the members here are the ones being instructed, that third person imperative. Let each other one in the church function this way. If one person does this, another person must also do this. So God is a God of order, and the members in the church function according to that nature. But also it says he's a God of peace. The sense of this Greek word here is harmonious relations and freedom from disputes. So the idea is that when the church, when the individual members are reflecting the peace of God, we are working in harmony with one another. There is something beautiful, especially when our brother Jake plays the piano over here. You can hit one key at a time and play these awesome songs, wonderful. But when he gets five, six, seven, eight of those extensions hitting different notes that are all designed to function together, that's called a chord, it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? That is the harmony of the church. And that happens when there is peace among the members, freedom from disputes. One way that we rebel against order and peace in the church is by creating disputes, not functioning in harmony, as we've seen the first Corinthians do. So that's the first way that the church models God's character and nature. Here's the second way. The church models God's character and nature in its worship in its worship. So it's not just harmony among the members, it's also harmony of function. It means that there's order and structure. Here's what ought to happen, here's how it ought to happen, and then this can happen, and then this can happen, so that there is no confusion. There's order and structure, and then harmony is the result. This is why when you have disharmony and discord, it's because you have rebelled against order and structure. Think about these riots that we see around our country and around the world. There's a rebellion against order and structure. And you can argue all day, well, but maybe in this case it was justified, or this is why it happened there. We're not even going to address that. We just need to note the pattern that when there is order and structure and it's abandoned, the result is chaos, discord, disharmony. Imagine right now if I'm trying to preach and multiple people are standing up at the same time and all trying to do something different. The truth is, we are all prone to this. Our sinful natures, all of us, we are prone to reject order and harmony. 
If you want an example of this, look at young children. I didn't have to teach my children to be disobedient, though I'm sure unintentionally I do that sometimes. But from very early on, they learn. You see the look in their eyes, don't touch. And then there's this, it's built within us to reject these things. Perfect order and harmony is found in God, but in our sin, we reject it by rejecting God, and the result is chaos. We should not be surprised when life gets chaotic, when at the same time, we are not conforming to God's character and nature. In fact, it's actually the grace of God that life works the way that it does. It is the grace of God that your life falls to pieces when you rebel against God's order and structure. If that weren't the case, we would never come to see our sin as inherently sinful. We would never cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and turn to Him to be saved from our sin. So since the church has been purchased by God, the church is to model his character in nature. I'm going to go ahead and give the second point now, then we'll dive into this passage, which I'm sure you have all been eagerly, anxiously waiting to hear me explain. Here's the second point. The church is to embrace God's authority. The church is to embrace God's authority. So we're coming now in the text to a heated topic in many churches today. And I believe that it's so heated because there is a lot of misunderstanding about it. There's a lot of misinterpretation, I think, sometimes. I believe, and this requires a little bit of assumption, I believe that a lot of times the misunderstanding is because we want to take this little verse out of the letter and look at it by itself. This is one of the important reasons that as I preach, I am going through the Bible so that when we come to a verse like this, we don't just understand it in light of my cultural situation, but I understand it in light of everything Paul's been saying so far. It's a part of a larger argument in his letter. So now what does it say? Starting in verse 34, I'm actually going to start in the second half of 33. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I think the best way to start is by noting what this passage does not mean. Paul is not saying women should never talk in the church. You might say, but Garrett, that's exactly what I see it saying here. That's if you want to take it out of context. If you want an example of this in modern day terms, look at almost any news station. They are all filled with bias, and no matter what side of the aisle they are on, it is so easy to listen to what someone is saying, clip out the part that you don't like, and make it seem like they're saying one thing when they were really actually saying something else. And both sides do this. We need to look at this in the context of everything that Paul is saying. What does he mean when he says that? Well, I know he doesn't mean that women should say nothing, because back in chapter 11, when we looked at head coverings in the church, what did we see in chapter 11? Women praying in the church. Well, that's odd. I thought women weren't supposed to talk in the church. And here Paul is encouraging the women praying in the church. They just need to do it in a certain way. So I do not believe that this is saying women should never talk in the church. Okay, well if Paul's point here isn't just about them speaking, what is it about? I want you to remember the context here is about order and harmony. Well, Paul gives the reason that they are to keep silent in the church. He says they shouldn't speak because they are to, quote, be in submission as the law also says. So there's a certain order that they must be in submission to. What is the order? The order is revealed in the law, that's the Old Testament teachings, that seems to require them to ask their husbands at home. 
The order that Paul is talking about here is the marriage relationship, the creation order between man and woman. If you'll remember in chapter 11, Paul has already made this exact point in chapter 11. It is the exact same point. He said that even though both men and women pray in the church, it should be done differently in such a way that it doesn't dishonor or confuse their marriage relationship. For a woman to pray with her head uncovered was viewed as a provocative thing, almost as though she is saying, I am not underneath the authority of my husband. It'd be the equivalent of us saying today, I'm available even though I say that I'm married. So Paul in wisdom says it should not function that way in the church to prevent that potential misunderstanding. And now we see the same thing coming full circle here. In the marriage relationship, the husband is the spiritual leader by design. That doesn't mean that he's superior. It means he is the one who is held accountable by God for spiritually leading and protecting his family. Well, in the church, if wives were to step up as the tongue speakers with the interpreters and as the prophets were doing, they would be speaking authoritatively within the church, especially over their husbands. And it would be creating disorder in the church. The marriage and creation order would be subverted. And I believe this is part of the reason also that we see later, as the office of pastor is established, notice we don't see that mentioned here in 1 Corinthians. This is one of the letters, one of the first letters written to the churches. We don't see that articulated yet. It's not until later in some of the later letters that we start to see that office of pastor being more fully articulated. Well, later, as that office is established, we see in the scriptures where that office is limited to men, which would even further help to protect against disorder in the church. I want you to write down this passage for you to look at later, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We don't have time to go through it this morning, but you can go look at it later. And if you notice, as you look through that passage, you're going to see the same instruction. Women ought to learn quietly with submission. But right after that, he ties it directly to the authoritative teaching in the church. So what Paul is arguing for here is not complete silence by women in the church. Let me tell you right now, it is a good thing for godly women in the church to step up and to lead and to pray. We have wonderful VBS coordinators, uh, into the world coordinators, Ladies that have led the church in song, choir members. We have godly women in the church. And I would argue a lot of times the pattern is that we see the women in the church rising up spiritually above their husbands. This is an indictment on us as godly men in our families. We ought to be serving that spiritual leadership role. And we have our wives that are stepping up to the plate because a lot of times we have backed down. So what Paul is saying here is not women never speak or do anything important in the church. Rather, he's saying, women, since God designed you to live in submission to your husband in marriage, do not exercise this teaching authority over men in the church. When the men get up, to prophesy, do not stop and speak over them. Just keep silent. And then further, if you have a question about a teaching, ask the spiritual leader of your home first. It is to protect order and harmony in the church. For the wife to not do so would be just as dishonoring to her husband as the wife who prayed with her head uncovered in the church. Now, just like our first point, I'm going to give you two ways that we are to embrace God's authority in the church. Number one, the church embraces God's authority by submitting to God's word. 
The church embraces God's authority by submitting to God's word. If you'll notice, right after this instruction on women in the church, and he says, uh, he, he quotes, he references that it is written in the law in verse 34. They should be in submission as the law also says. This is another way of saying, as the word of God says. And then he follows that up with talking about the word of God in verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? So he asks two rhetorical questions here. The first one is obviously very sarcastic. Here's how it ought to function in the church so there's no disorder or harmony. Unless you think God's word originated from you and you determine how to interpret it. You determine the meaning. Is what he's saying, basically. It's very sarcastic. He's basically asking, who has the ultimate authority here? You? Why does he ask the question? If the message originates from them, they get to decide what it means, but it doesn't. The scriptures originate from God, so God decides what it means. If you want more on this, we had a Sunday night series on how to interpret the Bible. You can find it on our website, and all of that is going to be available for you there. It would take several sessions to look at that. The scriptures did not originate from them, so they don't get to determine what it means. Rather, our job is to discover what it means. We are to ask, well, God, what, are you, what do you mean by this? What are you trying to say? And the best way to do that is to look at what you're looking at in the context of everything around it. When we disobey the word of God, we are becoming an authority over ourselves. It's as though we say, I sit in judgment over what's written here. I'm God. And I will submit to the Bible when it makes sense to me. May we never be guilty of that. Number two, the church embraces God's authority by weighing carefully the words of God's messengers. The church embraces God's authority by weighing carefully the words of God's messengers. The second rhetorical question here. First, is it from you that the word of God came? Obviously not. Second rhetorical question. Are you the only ones that it has reached? Basically, to reword this, are you the only ones that are reading it and trying to understand it? It would be arrogant for them to think that they are. God's word isn't from them, so no, they don't get to determine the meaning. And they aren't the only ones who are hearing it and having to make conclusions and decisions about it. Now, why would Paul ask this? He would ask it in order to show them that there is something necessary in reaching out in godly wisdom to other leaders in the church, and not just in their church. When he says this to them, he's talking to the Corinthian church, and he's implying that churches in all these other areas are also wrestling with issues. The same principle is at play with the, the requirement to have multiple prophets weighing what is said, to have the interpreter interpreting the tongues. Interpreting the Bible is not just an individual exercise. It's a group exercise. When it becomes an individual exercise, I determine my interpretation, and then I don't listen to any other interpretation that disagrees with mine. Part of the stretching of my faith, especially early on in my faith, where it happened all the time, is hearing people that interpret this thing differently than you do. I'll tell you, sometimes you think something is so clear until you hear it from someone else's perspective, and then you think, oh, I honestly did not see it that way, and that actually makes a lot more sense. Sometimes there's blind spots that we cannot see. So this drives home the importance of other churches. In this specific case, the entire church was practicing something that all the other churches were not practicing. And Paul says, do you think you're the only ones to have God's word? Look at what they're doing. 
People speaking out of turn. These strange tongues that are happening. Wives dishonoring their husbands and how they worshipped, whether in prayer or public proclamation of God's word. Paul was teaching them otherwise. And he did so by pointing, first to God's word here, theological reasoning from God's word, but second to other churches. He says, as in all the other churches of the saints. Do you think you're the only ones that it has reached? The epitome of arrogance here would be for the Corinthians to not give Paul's instructions careful consideration, the careful consideration that it deserved. And as Paul makes clear in verses 37 and 38, it would be to disobey the Lord who commissioned Paul as an apostle. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul summarizes, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Just like our rejection of godly order, we are prone to reject godly authority. This is just part of the nature of sin. We don't like authority over us. We want freedom from authority. You ever stop to think about why that is? People have all different kinds of answers to that. Well, it's because all other authority is bad, but I know the right way for it to be exercised. Well, let's look at history and see how well that works for you. The person who says, I can wield authority the right way, and then given this unchecked power, it usually does not end well. So some people say, well, that's why I reject authority, but that misses the point. You're never going to find perfect authority. We'll be on that train forever. I can tell you why we'll never find perfect authority. Because God is the only perfect authority. And if we keep rejecting God's authority, we will never be satisfied with any authority ever. Authority is good when it is handled in a godly way. That's why the church and its members need to conform to the image of God. So that they can enjoy godly authority. Jesus died precisely because we are all rebels who have rejected God's order in creation and rejected God's authority over us as our creators. Jesus died because we don't live in submission to God. We don't delight in God's leadership and authority over us as we ought to. Instead, we make ourselves God over our own lives and break God's commands every step of the way. Hear me this morning. Jesus died to forgive us for these things and to free us from them. We are freed to live under godly order and godly authority. Everyone who does not trust Jesus in faith and turn to follow him as Lord will be judged for divine treason. Everyone. There are many people who think they've been forgiven of these things, but they are deceived, and it's evident because they aren't free from them. They still reject order and harmony and peace and authority. Their lives are not characterized by humble submission, peace, and order, but manipulation, disorder, strife, and subversion. This word here, and I'll read a passage and be done, but this word back here in verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion. Another translation, I think the CSB says disorder. And if you look at other places in the Bible where that word is used, it's also translated with this word, riot. It describes in the book of Acts, these men got together and rioted. Literally, they disordered. Let me read a passage for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and then we'll close out. Listen to God's word. 2 Corinthians 12, 19 through 21. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians again, probably frustrated that they're not listening to him. And he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God 
that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So what does Paul encourage them to do? Chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So this morning, examine yourselves. Are you characterized as the Bible says that Christians ought to be characterized by peace and harmony and order and authority? Or is your life more chaotic than you have let on as you rebel against order, you rebel against God's authority? There is jealousy and strife and rioting that happens with you at the center. The call from the scriptures, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the encouragement that your word often provides us. The promise and the offer for us to taste and to see that you are good to turn to you in faith and repentance that you might abide in us and dwell in us and that we can enjoy that, that we might abide in you. But Lord, we also thank you for the directness with which your word speaks to us. As your word exposes our shortcomings, Lord, even this week as your word has exposed my shortcomings, we know and we celebrate, Lord, that these are all intended that the church might be built up into the image of Christ, that we might be more and more characterized by your character and your nature, that we might more and more fall under and submit to your authority as our God and the authority structures that you have given us in our lives. Lord, would you keep us humble as we seek to interpret your word faithfully so that we might apply it rightly? Would you create harmony and order and peace within us as a church and within all of us as individual members of this church so that when the world looks at us, whether it's on Sunday morning or every other hour of every other day of the week, that they might see Christ in us? Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ for his honor and glory and for our good. Amen.